All right. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 and follow along with the scripture reading this morning with the sassy, the precocious, the dear to my heart, Miranda. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Thank you. Genesis 1 teaches us that God has made all things. He's the creator. He's the boss. King's kids, if you are in second grade on down and you would like to go to the junior church, you can follow Miranda. Yeah, she's going to teach you even more. There you go. Glad you're here today. Got some already around the corner. Well, you had some homework last week. How'd you do? Show the first. There you go. Remember, you're supposed to identify one of those steps to work on. How did you do? Go to the next slide. You're supposed to have picked one of these steps and work on it this week. Now, did anybody ask you about that this week? This is, a, this is a, a pastoral poll to see how many people actually do what I say. Who talked to their neighbor this morning about one of these? One, two, three. That's what I thought. Oh, who checked on somebody else during the week? We'll give you a little, okay. Oh, wow, I got. Oh, good. Okay, well, this, okay, you can put your hands down. That's a little more encouraging. A little. Uh, how many of you prayed for somebody on either side of you from last week? Oh, thank you. This is getting better. This is getting much better. Okay, how many of you just lie to my face anytime I say anything anyways? That's just <laughs> how many of you. <laughs> it better not be those praying people. We got more to pray for. Uh, good. Good. Less screen time. More sleep. Earlier prayer time. Increasing the household of faith of the, the Christians that you talk about God with. Talking about God to yourself with other people, having a deeper desire for God. Um, in my small group, we we talked about those a lot, and uh, the conclusion is you can do all six of those things and get all those things right, uh, and still be far from God. Because what matters at its core is loving the Lord your God surrendering to that God, not just checking off all these boxes. You can become a Pharisee by just doing everything that needs to be done. What we're after, however, is heart change. And that is the, the motivation behind this entire series of wisdom. Today we are asking the question, who is this God of wisdom? How do we get to know him? What does the Bible say about him? And there are two ways you can go about this. One, you can open up a concordance or you get on your computer. The programmers of the YouVersion Bible, which is the most popular Bible app on electronics, they say one of the most searched for words in their app and in their Bible reading programs is the word, say it, wisdom. It is. People see their need to understand wisdom from God's point of view. But before we get to what God has actually said about wisdom, 
I want you to see in Genesis chapter 1 who this God that we are learning from is. He is a God of wisdom. All wisdom flows from Him. In fact, all of creation flows from Him. We are a people sitting in church today with thousands of years of God's communications to us. Man, we have taken it, we've leather-bound it, we've golden-printed it, we've embossed it, we've highlighted it, circled it, we've got multiple copies of it. We are a people who have God's communication to us in abundance. How are you doing on the next step? Because it's not enough that you receive the communication. It's even not enough that you memorize it and create a bunch of lists and do as much as you can. One of my favorite interactions with Jesus in the New Testament is a wise guy who runs up to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? Like, dude, that is the million-dollar question. What must I do? Jesus responds. It was, it was the verse of the day on, on the House FM this week. Jesus responds, here are the works of God. Oh, give me a pen. This is going to be good. Jesus is about to tell me what to do. To be right with God. Here are the works of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. And Jesus is pointing at himself. You want to do something? You want to work hard? Here's where you start. You believe in he whom God has sent. Your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You cannot save yourself. You cannot do anything to gain eternal life. You can't do anything to remove God's wrath over your lying, cheating, stealing, coveting, adulterous minds. You can't do enough. All of your bad outweighs all of your good, and it always will. Because we're not born good. Only God is good. Is that resonating with you? And your only hope of finding peace, purpose, meaning, wisdom is having Jesus. Not, not just believing. Because Jesus explains what he means by believe when he says, follow me. The demons believe Jesus is the Son of God. What separates you from them? I really believe. (laughs) They really believe too. They know He is the Son of God. They know He died on the cross to redeem humanity. They know everything He did probably better than some of us. So what is it? That makes me different from a demon who knows about Jesus, who knows God's word. A life of faith that lives out my constant belief that Jesus is my Lord, my Savior, my only hope, my only chance. He is my new life. He is living water. He is the bread of life. He is my good shepherd. He, 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 he. And life becomes more about he, grammatically bad point in the sermon, than me. That's the purpose. And that life of pursuing after God, knowing God, putting God first, that is what I mean by pursuing a life of wisdom. It's not just getting a few pithy sayings down. 
It's not just finding a few little nuggets of wisdom that'll change the way I run my business, change the way I handle my finances. It is about fundamentally changing your whole life from the inside out. When we read from Genesis, we are beginning in an interesting place. So in this pursuit of wisdom, we come to Genesis chapter 1. And I need to define some things before we unfold the story a little more from Genesis 1. We're going to read all of Genesis 1 today. Miranda just got us primed and started. Um, So grab your notes, grab your bulletin, fill in these blanks, because the things we are learning about general revelation and special revelation and theology this morning are going to explain how and why I'm unfolding this pursuit of wisdom from Genesis, and then we get later on. So here, general revelation, write this down. A couple of definitions. General revelation. This is learning about God from nature. I can walk into nature and see and learn about some of God's character by watching a thunderstorm. Or go into Yosemite Valley and I see half dome. I see a solid rock mountain that has been cut in half by a glacier. And I realize God is bigger than that. Awe-inspiring. Another way to think of it is God's fingerprints. We can see God's fingerprints. We can see somebody else's fingerprints too. Well, we know somebody's been there doesn't tell us how tall they are, how wide they are, how smart they are. It's just evidence that there's been somebody there. That's what we get when we look at nature, general revelation. Uh, sometimes it's called common knowledge because anybody without, with any level of education can, can look at nature and see that, God, that there is something going on bigger than me. Psalm 19, the entire psalm is good, but let me read the beginning of it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, God has set a tent for the sun which comes like the bridegroom leaving his chamber. Like a strong man, it runs its course with joy. From the rising, from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of the heavens, there's nothing hidden from its heat. Just just a little poetry about the fact that God can be seen through nature. His outline. But if we want to know details about who he is and his personality... And if we want to be able to love him, we need to know more than general knowledge. We need special revelation. Special revelation. This is learning from God, communicating directly. Write that down. Communicating directly. God's direct words to us. Has God spoken? Yes. And it is a hugely... Um, intricate, technical area of theology. Um, But God has spoken. God has spoken. We can know truth. Sometimes it's called specific knowledge. Special revelation is what we deal with the most. General revelation can give us uh, good feelings, Special revelation helps us love God. General revelation can help us see our smallness. Special revelation helps us see God's enormity. General revelation helps us understand, like, we we need help. Special revelation shows us God is everything we need. And it becomes a matter of living by sight, general revelation, or living by faith in God's special words to us. 
Or am I just going to have a, a natural, regenerate response to God, which, is, which can end up being pantheistic? Or am I going to have a supernatural, special relationship with God in Jesus? That's really narrow. Craig, you are so narrow-minded. That is a compliment. Because nothing gets narrower than Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to God except through me. <laughs> That's about as narrow as you can get. That's very specific, supernatural wisdom that you cannot get from looking at clouds or insects or the details of a leaf. You can see that God is awesome, but you can't see that he wants to know you. And so when we turn to Genesis, it is helping us understand that God, that general God, and it's going to start showing the specifics by which we can know him. Know him. He wants to be known. That's why he speaks. That's why he communicates. So we value God's word. A couple more terms to define. Biblical theology is the next blank. Biblical theology. Biblical theology starts in the book of Genesis and it tries to develop an understanding of who God is as God has revealed himself. Uh, this is the reason why we like, I like to preach through books of the Bible. You start in verse 1, chapter 1, and you read through it, and you develop an understanding as you go. That's, that's biblical theology. Uh, the Apostle Paul does this when he starts preaching in Athens. He starts talking about God of creation, and then he talks about God of Israel, and then he talks about Jesus. That's biblical theology. There are missionaries who have experimented with this. They've gone to tribes, and they've learned their language, and instead of saying, you need Jesus, like, Jesus means nothing to them. It, it, biblical theology is like, put, is like crocheting an afghan. And I, my grandma had that afghan. Those, those leftover bin colors from the 70s. I think I've got one somewhere tucked away in a trunk, like, I think a lot of people had one of those. And it was draped over her drab olive green couch. Right? You know, it's earth tones. Whoa. But biblical theology is like an Afghan. It has a specific starting point, And you go and you go and you go and you put it all together until you have a complete. Or it's like a, it's like a statue that has been chiseled out of a single piece of stone. Biblical theology slowly chips away at your general understanding, the block at the bottom, and reveals an intricate God who's always been there. You just needed help seeing it. That's biblical theology. And it's good, and we do it. There's another thing that is good and that we do, but it's a different approach. And it's called systematic theology. Write that down. Systematic theology, instead of slowly going through the Bible. It's kind of the ADD theology. I want to know about this. And then you get out your concordance. I want to know about... Give me a topic. I want to know about grace. And so I, I, get on, I Google the word grace. And then I get my Bible open and I go look at every different passage in the Bible on grace. And I put it's like putting a puzzle together. And you pick a topic like grace and you put all the pieces together and you, oh, they kind of fit and you get a little bit of a picture. Systematic theology puts all these little pictures together. Grace, righteousness, truth, forgiveness, sanctification. And it begins to shape who God is. Or it's like a quilt, like a patchwork family quilt. My grandma had one of these too. I used to like to get on her bed and look for my name. I always knew where it was, but I started in the wrong place because I was little and be like, there's my cousins, there's so-and-so. Oh, look at me, I'm right in the middle. I am loved. I was the oldest grandchild by many years and spoiled, spoiled. Yeah, that was me. Systematic theology is like that patchwork quilt, but with a single backing. 
It's God. It's all showing you who God is and where you fit and where we fit and where everything in history fits into what God is doing. And they're both good. Biblical theology is good. Systematic theology is good. What am I doing with wisdom? Both. We've picked a topic, and we could bounce around and do the systematic approach, but I'm choosing to try and do a biblical theology approach. That's why we're starting in Genesis 1. And we're asking, who is this God of wisdom now? Don't get scared. We're not going to take look at every chapter. We're going to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then we're going to leap to Abraham. Then we're going to leap to David. Then we're going to leap to Solomon. But in doing all that, I'm trying to help you understand a biblical framework of wisdom. It's not just taking a few verses and building your life around them. It's about building your life on the God who can supply all of your need. So we're doing both. So open your Bible to Genesis 1. Let's read a little deeper into the Genesis beginning. Genesis 1. I'm going to pick up in verse 9. Um, for the next few months, I'm working with the, the ESV Bible. The last sermon series, we, I use the NASV, the New American Standard. Um, but I'm liking the ESV. It gets a lot of words right. Well, it gets all the words right. I just like the order it's putting in words. and making It's making more and more sense the more and more I use this version. If you have another version, that's great. Craig, which version do you recommend? Whichever version you're going to obey. If you'll do it, read it. So, Genesis 1, verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their own seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit which is in its own seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day, and God said, because he's never done, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. I like that. All the stars. Fling! And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas, let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So here's the story unfolding. Do not read your 21st century understandings of science back into Genesis 1. That's bad theology. What does biblical theology attempt to do? To let God's communication to us unfold and explain truth to us in the order that He intends. 
Be careful. There's a big warning here. We should not read truths backwards into Genesis and assume that Genesis is trying to say things that it might not actually be trying to say. Systematic theology gives me many truths that I can, I can see a lot of hints. I can see a lot of, a lot of truth from uh, Jesus being the creator and sustainer of all things. John 1, 1. Jesus is doing some of this. I can see, and from Colossians, that invisible things are creating visible things. Like There's, there's a lot of good truth here, but don't, don't get sucked in to reading the wrong things into the story. Genesis, listen very carefully. The book of Genesis is not given to us to disprove evolution. The theory of evolution didn't even exist, so it can't be its primary purpose. We can use that as an application, and we can go down the line, but we don't turn to Genesis first and say, how do I destroy something? No, we come to Genesis very carefully, and we let it teach us what it wants to teach us. What is it trying to teach us? Here's your next blank. Genesis is given to humanity to attest that a personal, benevolent God has established a creation that He intends to care for and love. To care for and love. God is speaking. That's significant. There's chaos and God is bringing order. That is significant. There are no other gods doing battle and fighting for these different realms. That is significant. Lots of other faiths, especially ancient faiths that are around the nation of Israel, that are Babylonian faith, Mesopotamian faith, Assyrian faiths. Um, what else we got? Egyptian faith. All of those faiths have gods who are struggling, striving, fighting, Lying, cheating, sleeping around, doing all these crazy things to bring forth creation. And they're fighting over, uh, I'm the God of the heavens, and I'm the God of the seas, and we're all, and they're, and, and you read this, and Yahweh comes shining through. He is not a God who struggles with anybody. You know how he makes everything? He just speaks. Nobody can fight against him. There is no struggle. He is the God of all power, all authority. And this Genesis account, it, I'm telling you, you have to trust me on this. This Genesis account is highly offensive to all other faiths. Because this God does not have to raise his voice or struggle or fight. Because he's God. And that's the point. That's the point. Be careful to not get sucked into reading precise details of our understanding of life today backwards into Genesis. Genesis cannot be about things that would make Moses scratch his head. <laughs> um, one example. If you, com you come at me and say, Genesis teaches me that I need to reduce my carbon footprint. Okay, Moses would scratch his head on that one. Be like, what? Genesis? Genesis, that's what Genesis is about. Uh, no, it's not what it's about. Big principle. God is the God of creation who has made all things and is in We're going to see it when we read in a minute. He's going to entrust things to humanity and expect us to be good stewards. Big principle. Application. How can I be a good steward of the earth? Application. By not raping, pillaging, and plundering its resources or hoarding them for myself. That might include, in some people's paradigm, not increasing CO2 emissions. I can see how you can get there. 
but we have to be careful that we don't come into Genesis and tell, tell me what it's saying. The applicate, we need to not jump to specific applications and miss the big idea. I'm going to say that again. We need to be careful that we don't read God's word, not just in Genesis. This is just a little instructional video on how to read all of the Bible. We have to dig deeply at the principle here and not always be so quick to jump to the principles that we are passionate about because other people can jump to opposite principles and applications. And it is possible for people who all love Jesus to end up on different sides of the fence on particular issues. Well, how is that possible? The Bible, ha the Bible has an agenda and a big meaning here. And it's not you or even how you live your life. It's about discovering who God is as the God of all creation, all power, all authority. Bow your knee to him. He's the God of all wisdom. And you can trust that God. And it frees your heart because that God can lead people into different areas and applications and do things differently, and live life differently than you. Raise their kids differently than you. Go into different career fields than you. Why are there so many different kinds of people? Because God has got a sense of humor. And He likes variety. And the life He intends for you to live might look different than the life He intends for somebody else to live. With an exception, God intends all of us to have Him at the center. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with everything. All your heart and all your stuff. All your dreams, all of your plans, everything, all of you. So oh, please, I feel like I'm begging you and I am. We must avoid a couple of extremes. Um, avoid reading precise details back into Genesis that aren't intended to be there. And avoid this too. Don't think that the people who heard this at first were simplistic. They had very sophisticated understandings of the cosmos. I mean, people are developing calculus in the ancient world. They're smart. They're clever. We still wonder how they built things like the pyramids. Like, where do, where do you get that kind of technology? Aliens brought it. No, 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 no. You, our human minds are capable of fantastic things. Discoveries and processes. And over time, you know, you build a few pyramids, everybody gets bored of it, and everybody forgets how you did it. Nobody's passing that on anymore. Because it takes, like, you know, millions of people to build one of those suckers. And that's just not feasible all the time. So they forget we wonder but they weren't simple they were very sophisticated people so why does genesis seem so simple because they're asking different questions than you are asking we live in a world of wanting to know how that's practically the reason youtube exists <laughs> how do i do that well just there you go here's how you do it there's so many it, it's mind-boggling we are a generation of how, how. That, that's like our primary drive. Ancient people, that's not their primary question. Their primary question is why? So when we look at Genesis, we have why answers. And this is why our how questions hit a brick, hit a brick wall. This is a book of why answers, and it's not meant to answer all of the how. How, Dale, how did God create light before he created the sun? Doesn't matter. He did it. But how? How? Did we get all the different species and varieties of animals that we have now without evolution? How? Not answering that question. 
We ask a lot of how questions. Genesis is answering bigger questions, the why questions. And those why questions, they take some time for our minds. You got a lot of, you got a lot of little gnats. You just got to kind of, just, ugh. You ever tried to camp and had a terrible time? The scenery didn't change. The sun came up. The sun went down. The water was there. The food was there. You just couldn't focus for all the irritating little things that were trying to suck your blood. I'm afraid our culture and our personal tendencies are to be distracted by all the little annoyances, and we miss the big picture that God is painting. As we approach this God of wisdom, understand, He's not painting a picture of you, of your life, of His specific will for your life. He is painting a glorious picture of Himself. What does Genesis teach me about that God? Not about science, not about my life, we can use the God principles to instruct our lives, but we can't get to God if we put ourselves, this is about me, isn't it? Woo! Man, we're terrible about that. And it makes me gag, because I still see it in Bible study samples. I get sample books in the mail, lesson samples, book reviews. Uh, and you read a passage, what does this mean to me? You don't go there first. What does this mean? Tell me what you think. No! I don't care what you think. I want to know what this Bible passage says about God. Don't tell me what you think, because the moment we open our mouths, like, well, I think. Ah, oh, no. <sighs> That's what we do, though. That's even how teachers can default in their teaching teach 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 the big principle oh people just want to talk i think that's some of it <laughs> people just want to share their little hearts share their little minds little god is bigger than that when we approach the bible when we approach this god look for him don't look for yourself in here that that'll show up you're going to see yourself in Rahab. You're going to see yourself in David. You're going to see yourself in the apostles. You're going to see yourself plenty. You really don't need to work hard at that. What you really need to work hard on focusing as we read our Bibles is focusing on what does this say about God. And you have got to be like a bulldog on that question. This is why most people misinterpret the parables. You read the parable and you go, what does that mean about my life? How am I supposed to live? What does it say about God? That needs to be our first go-to. What does this say about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit? Go, let those questions be bigger than you. What does this say about God's kingdom, God's promises, God's future, the church? That's still bigger than you. You need to ask all of those questions way before you get into the weeds of, well, well what does this mean for me? I need to sweep my house more because I've got money lying around? Yeah, yeah, that's one way to read that parable. I need to wake up in the middle of the night and celebrate with my neighbors because I found something? Like, nah. you, you See, if you read it with you in mind, so I'm here to slap you upside the head and remind you from Genesis 1, it's not about you are answering all of your questions and they're important I'm not saying they're not important but the bigger question is why is God doing things this way who is this God how can I identify with him those are the big questions real fast let's go through four wholesome questions to ask whenever we read a text number one what impact did this have on ancient people? I teased at that already. What impact did Genesis 1 have on an Egyptian 
if they had left Egypt, some Egyptians left Egypt with the Israelites and crossed the Red Sea, what impact would hearing Moses tell this, write this story of Genesis 1, what impact would this have on ancient people? An Egyptian would be like, oh yeah, no, duh. He just crushed everything I thought was a god. He is the god of all this. Yeah, I'm following him now. Or 500 years later, what would in Assyrian, maybe in northern Iraq region, what would they think if they if a Jewish person came to their region and started reading Genesis one? They'd be like, "That doesn't. That's a lot different than my creation story." Let me tell you about Marduk and the way he shot a flaming arrow into the back of that that demoness's throat and used the wind to inflate her and then mixed her blood with clay and created humans to be our slaves. What? Yes. Weird stuff. Genesis 1 doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say God had to create slaves. Humans weren't made to be that. What, did the, what was the meaning of this book to those ancient people? And it was offensive it was revolutionary. It was different. Genesis 1 is completely unique compared to all the other faith stories of creation. That's a big idea. Yahweh is setting himself apart. And he doesn't present himself as a warrior. Did you catch that? He, create, he presents himself more as an artist. <laughs> you're not going to find very many ancient uh, gods that are uh, artistic. They're mean and vengeful, full of retribution. And they scheme and they lie. And they, they're trying to get everything to serve them. They're trying to get everything under their control. Does this sound like a god who is lacking in any control? Nope. Does this even sound like a God who needs anything? Everything is flowing out of him. Life is coming out of him. He's creating all things, all things, all power. One of the most underrated phrases in Genesis 1 is this, and it was so. Because God's the boss. Yahweh doesn't struggle to do anything. Ah, I find comfort in that God. I want a God who never struggles. I want a God who never has to fight. And if he does, he's the God who's never lost a battle. He's the God who can slay everything with his breath. No sweat. No competition. There is no good versus evil. God won't lose, but he is very patient, and he's very kind. He's letting evil run its course, but it's not really a fight. I've read Revelation. That's not much of a fight. God is just going to settle all things by the word of his mouth. Is that, is that appealing to you? That's appealing to me, that kind of a God. That's the message I'm getting. That's the message I want. Uh, let, me, let me finish reading Genesis, because we've got the last couple days to go here. I'm going to read Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over everything, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them all for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, 
it wasn't just good. It was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Second question we need to ask when we read a chunk of scripture like that. What do we learn primarily about God from these truths? About God. We're going to see next week, chapter 2 is going to actually unpack day number 1 and give us more details on how God made Adam and Eve and how he spoke to them. But Genesis 1 is straight up. God breathes. God creates. Question number 3. Does the original meaning of Genesis challenge humanity today? Oh, yeah. How? How? How does Genesis 1 challenge humanity today? It's very simple. There is a God who created all things, and you owe him your life. That's, well, that's kindergarten stuff. Yeah, it's kind of built for your kindergarten faith. Get back to the basics. Get back to it. Keep it simple. Number four, how is my faith enhanced by these ancient truths it is appropriate to ask what a text means for your life but you never go there first and it's not always about your life it's about your faith what does this teach me about how i should believe in god and it comes right back to god again because your faith your hope is built on nothing less than jesus his blood his righteousness that's what we sing that's what it's about so even when you come to the point of you what does this mean for my faith yeah it's point it's an end end around bringing you back to god what did you learn about god in genesis 1 what have you learned who is this god of wisdom here's how i'd summarize uh, in a few sentences yahweh he's presented as yahweh Yahweh alone is the source of all matter and energy. Yep, made all things. That's wisdom's ability and power on display. Yahweh, he names all things. He evaluates them and says they're good. And then he organizes creation. I didn't do it. But what God did on days one, two, and three was create one, two, and three. And on days four, five, and six, he went back, fill, fill, fill. It's really organized. Created the heavens, and on day four, filled the heavens. Created the sky and the oceans, and on day five, filled the sky and the oceans. Created the earth and vegetation, and then on day six, fills the earth. And with animals that eat the vegetation. Like it's fits. He's very organized. Yahweh also values humanity and cares for them. That is a huge message of Genesis. God is not making them slaves. He's communicating with them. He's giving them responsibility. He speaks with them respectfully. He doesn't scare them. He's not dominating over them. In fact, the next blank, he shares authority with them. He says, now I'm giving it to you to rule over the plants and to rule over the animals. Details next week on how he shares his authority, because it's just a reflection of who God is. That, that's what we're be, meant to be. We're supposed to reflect some of God's likeness and image. We're created differently. That's what Genesis is teaching us. He's sharing authority Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, the God of Moses is the source and fountain of all wisdom. So write this down, your last blank, here it is. The God of Israel, presented in Genesis 1, his name is Yahweh, we're going to get personal later. He's the only source of wisdom. So look for it. Look for him. What we need 
is more of Him. What we desire is more of Him. What He wants is more of you. Stand with me. Let's pray. God, we come to you right now and we thank you for Genesis 1. You didn't even have to tell us how and why you made all things, but you did. So help us as we read our Bibles. Help us to get the big picture, even though our daily lives are full of so many questions. As we read your word, God, reorient our thinking so that we think about you. Even if we come to your word looking for answers, help us to see that you're the answer. Even if our lives are plagued by thousands of problems and decisions that we are paralyzed by, things that make us, that make us anxious and worried, things that bring us down into depression and despondency, God, when we are far from you, remind us to come to your word. And as we do, help it show us your goodness, your greatness, your glory, and your plan, which goes far beyond anything we could ever imagine or hope for. And in finding you, God, give us the peace that we need the peace that we need to wake up and go live another day. Because sometimes even that is a struggle. When things seem stuck and are looping and our sin and our pain over and over again, God, open up your word to us so when we read it, we see that you are above it all, beyond it all, controlling it all. And there will be a day when you scoop us up and lovingly take us out of our sin. That's what we pray for today. Save us. You are our great God. And as we find you, help us to find the wisdom we need to make good decisions every day. In Jesus' name, amen.